Welcome to the Truth to Power podcast from Churches Together in Britain and Ireland. These recordings were originally streamed as live webinars where we brought together key people from across the church and society to discuss significant contemporary issues. This episode discusses the Grenfell Tower fire tragedy and the ongoing struggle for justice. The original webinar was hosted in partnership with the Baptist Union of Great Britain. A very good evening to you one and all. Um, Thank you so much, a heartfelt thank you to all of you for joining us on Zoom as well as on Facebook for this one hour webinar entitled The Grenfell Tower Tragedy. Um, And we are delighted, delighted that you are all with us, so thank you. Uh, a grateful shout out to Churches Together in Britain and Ireland, as well as the Baptist Union of Great Britain, who are the hosts of this evening's webinar. My name is Kevin, the Reverend Dr. Kevin Snayman, and I'm the Program Officer for Global Justice and Partnerships at the United Reformed Church here in the UK. We are delighted and honoured to be hosting our two speakers tonight, and they are the unrelenting Bevan Powell and the genuinely unstoppable Reverend Mike Long, both of whom I shall introduce more fully just before they begin to speak. So to run through the format, um, I'm doing some housekeeping at the moment. Uh, I will start after that with a brief introduction, uh, followed by Bevan speaking and then Mike. They'll speak for about 10 minutes each, uh, and they are tasked with deepening our understanding of the justice issues and and some of the the behind the scenes issues surrounding Grenfell. And finally, there will be a Q&A for the remainder of our hour together. So we'd really encourage you to, uh, to engage with the topic and ask that you formulate, think about, and send in your questions using the Q&A function that you'll see at the bottom of your, of your webinar page, rather than the chat function. Questions are always preferred over statements, uh, naturally, and we will do our very best to get to all of your questions, but of course, we don't guarantee Uh, that we get through all of them, particularly if there are many. This is the fourth in the series of five webinars that CTBR and the Baptist Union of Great Britain will be hosting, focusing on racial justice in Britain. On the 23rd of September 2020, we will be hosting our final webinar exploring the impact of COVID-19 on marginalised communities. Right, that's the housekeeping. Let us get to the task at hand. On the 14th of June 2017, a fire broke out in the 24-storey Grenfell Tower block in the flats in North Kensington. The fire was started by a malfunctioning fridge freezer on the fourth floor. It spread rapidly up the building's exterior due to the building's cheap and flammable external cladding, burning for about 60, that's six zero hours before being extinguished. The fire caused the deaths of 72 people injuring over 70 while leaving hundreds homeless and bereft. It was the deadliest UK residential fire since the Second World War. The Grenfell Tower inquiry began on the 14th of September 2017 uh, to investigate the cause of the fire and other related issues. Several relatives of the Grenfell victims called for an inquiry into the role that racism played in the events leading up to and following the the fire and inquiry. In fact, London Mayor Sidi Khan said that years of neglect, quote unquote, by the council and successive governments were responsible for what could have been a preventable accident. 
Dawn Foster, contributing editor on housing for The Guardian, said that this was an atrocity and was explicitly political and a symbol of the United Kingdom's deep inequality. Patrick Coburn, in an article for The Independent, said that the government is clearly frightened that the burnt bodies in Grenfell Towers will be seen as martyrs who died because of austerity, deregulation, and outsourcing. And Aditya Chakraborty from The Guardian drew comparisons with Grenfell to the often lethal living and working conditions faced by the working classes in Victorian Manchester, conditions that so influenced Frederick Engels. Chakraborty stated that those dozens of Grenfell residents didn't die, they were killed. What happened wasn't a terrible tragedy or some sofa studio platitude, it was social murder. Over 170 years later, Britain remains a country that murders its poor. Those are very difficult words to hear indeed. And so tonight we explore how the Grenfell fire wrenches open the interface between theology, social justice, racism, poverty, and systems of empire. Our first speaker then is the simply wonderful Bevan Powell. Bevan is currently the Equalities, Diversity, and Inclusion Advisor to the Methodist Church in Britain and a campaigner for racial equality. Bevan has spent most of his working career with the Metropolitan Police Service. He's one of the founding members of the UK National Black Police Association and former chair of the Metropolitan, Metropolitan Black Police Association in London. In 1998, Bevan was one of three Metropolitan Black Police Association executives who gave crucial evidence to the Stephen Lawrence inquiry and helped shape the language of institutional racism. In 2007, Bevan was awarded an MBE for his contribution to policing. And in 2014, he was elected Labour councillor in the London borough of Kensington and Chelsea, again challenging social injustice and providing advice to local people. This became all the more significant during the Grenfell Tower tragedy. Bevan brings a deeply personal perspective to our discussions, and we are looking so forward to your wisdom and insights, Bevan. Thank you. Thank you very much for that introduction, um, Kevin. Um, I've, I've lived in North Kensington all of my life. And so the death of 72 people from the community that I live um, and, and share the same air was, was deeply, deeply um, traumatic, not just for uh, the, re the relatives of those that lost uh, 72 members of their families. But my family, my, my uh, father lost friends in the tower. My nephew uh, goes to Kensington Aldrich, which is the school directly under um, the tower. So it's deeply personal. Uh, and I would say that North Kensington is still grieving and still seeking justice for uh, the 72 people who lost their lives needlessly. And as, as you said during the introduction, um, I, I became a counsellor in the local area in 2014 and so feel very much part of a system that let down uh, residents in, in that part of, of Kensington. Kensington and Chelsea at the time was seen as one of the most uh, well, it was the wealthiest um, um, 
borough in Europe, not just in, uh, in Britain, but it was the wealthiest in Europe. But those that lived in North Kensington did not enjoy uh, the fruits of that wealth. And it, and it didn't just begin with Grenfell. And what I'd like to do is, is very quickly, if I may, Kevin, just to run through a chronology of, of migration into the area, just, just so, so that uh, those that are watching this webinar have an understanding of, of the backdrop, certainly from the late 40s, 50s um, to present day. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm just going to run through that chronology. Um, so, you know, most people will be aware that in 1948, uh, the Empire Windrush uh, docked at Tilbury. And then two years later, the first phase of African-Caribbean um, settlers came to North Kensington. Um, and at the time, it was one of the largest Caribbean communities uh, within Britain. In 1958 uh, was the Notting Hill race riots. And the following year, uh, an Antiguan um, worker, Kelso Crocran, was murdered on Goulburn Road in North Kensington. And to this day, his, 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 his murder has been unresolved. In 1959, um, what I believe is the development of a civil rights movement in Notting Hill. Many will talk about the civil rights movement in uh, the United States, but I, I believe very much that we had the start of our own civil rights movement uh, in, in various cities across the country, but Notting Hill was certainly one of those uh, areas that had uh, it, it's, its own civil rights movement in, in its infancy. In 1959, Claudia Jones develops the um, Caribbean Carnival uh, that most people would be aware of and enjoy uh, during August. Um, and then in the 1960s becomes uh, a, a, another wave of, of migrants, the Moroccan community come to North Kensington. But one of the key things uh, throughout this time is, is the whole issue of inequality and poverty. Um, and in 1964, um, the Westway, the A40 motorway, uh, or dual carriageway was built um, across a thousand homes in North Kensington. Now, many people will be aware of the A40 or the Euston Road, um, but the A40 is not a straight road. If it was a straight road, it would have gone straight through um, the, the richer parts of Notting Hill uh, and, and Holland Park if it was a straight road, but it didn't take a straight road. What it did, it came through North Kensington, it came through um, Northwest um, Hammersmith and Fulham, and it came through um, Northwest Minister. And all of those areas, what they had in common, those were the homes of black and ethnic minority communities. And so what I'm, what I'm trying to describe here is, is that the inequalities that uh, led to the death of 72 people uh, in, in, in Grenfell Tower is, is a manifestation of inequality that has existed in the area. Even today, 
if you are a man in the north of the Kensington, in, in, living in North Kensington, your life expectancy is 15 years shorter than men living in the south of the borough. If you're a woman, your life expectancy is 12 years shorter. And we're talking about the 21st century, where we have such a, a, a variation in life expectancy in one of the richest boroughs in Europe. As I said earlier, the Grenfell um, fire itself it, it impacted so many, and, and I believe that North Kensington is still grieving. As a counsellor, um, we ran a, a number of surgeries. So as, as a political counsellor, you're, you're, you're required to run advisory, service, advisory um, surgeries for local residents. Following the fire, every single resident that came to my surgery was traumatised. Now, my ward is, is, is not the ward in which the Grenfell Tower uh, fire took place. I, my ward is about a mile and a half to two miles away from Grenfell. But the fire has impacted the entire area and, and, and beyond. Um, and so I, I believe very much that the area is still very much traumatised. At the time, local people lost all trust and confidence in politicians, whether they were Conservative or, or Labour. And in fact, there were many scuffles where uh, local councillors and elected officials would be um, jostled um, because local people had lost confidence. Uh, council vehicles were stoned, so the um, tenant management organisation, which many held responsible um, for the repairs of the, of, of the um, tower and the refurbishment, again, local people lost confidence. During the, the, the period of the fire, um, in, in the first few days, the emphasis was on uh, temporary rehousing of uh, residents from the tower and those who were what we call living in the, in the finger blocks. So not directly from the tower, but those that had been affected in the immediate surrounding areas and they had to be rehoused, many of those people. But what happened was, um, this was in the middle of the summer. So if you can imagine, many families would have been rehoused. They don't have suitcases. All they have are the belongings that they bought with them. And then over a few weeks, they'd start to, to get a few more belongings, etc. But because it was the middle of the summer, there were a number of sporting events such as Wimbledon. And so already traumatized um, residents were then asked to move from the hotels and bread and breakfast um, accommodation that they'd initially been placed in and further traumatized because they didn't have the basics they didn't have suitcases in which to put their belongings so I, i'm painting a picture so that the, those that, that are listening to this um are, un, understand that north kensington had suffered multiple inequality um, for decades. And for me, the, the, the loss of life, the 72 people who sadly lost their lives, 
direct manifestation of the inequality that exists, existed and still exists in North Kensington. Thank you. Thank you so much, Bevan. I, I'm, I think I'm just going to take a, a moment for us to digest what you've just said, because um, I don't know that anybody could not be moved by just the scale of the injustices that you have outlined there. Uh, and the fact that you have um, such personal experience and pain from, from, from that. Um, so um, there are a few questions coming in. Uh, Beverly, I'm just going to um, hand over to Mike first before we come back, and I may come back to you with some of those questions. Uh, but thank you so much. Um, Mike, I'm going to hand over to you. Um, I just want, by way of introduction, say that um, the Reverend Dr. Michael Long, also known as Mike, is the minister of the Notting Hill Methodist Church, which, if I'm not mistaken, is within a mile or so of the Greenfield Tower. Is that right, Mike? About 100 yards. But right, 100 yards. Okay. So Mike has a, an MPhil researching the church's response to poverty and a PhD on international debt uh, with particular reference to the Jubilee 2000 campaign. Uh, and so for those who don't believe in the move of the Holy Spirit, it is absolutely right that God puts you in, in Notting, uh, in, the, in the church um, um, at, at Notting Hill Methodist Church at the time. Mike is committed to community engagement, uh, particularly on the issues of debt, empowerment, and housing. He was at the very forefront of the church's immediate and ongoing response to the Grenfell fire and aftermath. And I see already some questions are coming up, Mike, that I'm sure that you'd want to take. Uh, and I, and some have even called him uh, the, the pastoral face of the church during those awful times. He subsequently chaired the Shelters Commission on Social Housing, what, which published its report in January 2019. Mike has published several articles on theology and housing and is here to share of his wisdom with us. Thank you very much, Mike. I'll hand over to you. Well, thank, thank you very much for the, uh, uh, for the invitation. It, it, it's, it's, uh, but, uh, but as Bevan has so movingly introduced, this, all, all this is, is because of a, a thoroughly uh, avoidable tragedy. Um, We've heard something about the, the background to the local authority and the, the community um, and the bald facts about the fire itself. just want to start off very briefly by saying something about the, um, the church's role in the, in the kind of immediate days and, and months after the fire. Um, uh, the, the church and the churches, all the local churches of various kinds uh, and the local Amman Mosque were heavily involved in assisting with uh, the, the relief operations in no small part because the local authorities response itself was so lamentably terrible uh, and and so invisible at first indeed it was only a few days before that the government had to replace any local authority efforts such as it was with with a uh, with a different strategy altogether um, but but in the immediate aftermath the churches were were all open and and offering themselves Often, it, often in a capacity which was more than simply offering safe spaces, though that was important in itself, and vehicles for the channeling of lament and sorrow, grief, anger, and much else. There were also places where people could meet and, and discuss, where uh, communities, uh, community organisations could be fostered and supported. And I like to think of the church's role as being very much that of a catalyst. It's, it wasn't the church's in many ways doing things for the community with the church helping the community to support itself 
and we saw a wonderful way in which the community, such a such a, a vibrant and resilient community, was able to demonstrate that in the midst of an appallingly traumatic experience. I think the church's role at the time was was both pastoral but also prophetic. Uh, and I'd like to think going forward, it, it can continue to be a force for community cohesion, as well as the, the aims of, of justice and, and of healing as well. Um, the church was used very much by lots of other agencies as well, um, by, by the media and the police, and because it was thought to be a safe space, many of them were thought to be safe spaces, um, which is interesting in itself. I mean, one of the reasons the churches were trusted was because of the, the history of the church's involvement in the preceding decades. Bevan has talked about the, the, the context of all the, all the experiences that so many people have had in that community over, over decades of, of racism and injustice and, and so on. And some of the churches in particular had been so involved in that process that the churches were seen locally as being on the sides of the people in many ways, rather than the authorities. And in a kind of reversal of what you might expect perhaps in other parts of the country, here the churches we discovered and the faith centres were those organisations that were being more trusted than statutory sanction, which, which was interesting. So, so the churches became the places where often people would gather and meet, when public meetings were chosen to be held because they were deemed not only to be, to be neutral, but to be safe spaces for people where people felt more at ease than in, than in, than in the more, more other arenas. Um, and where hospitality could be practised and learned. And I like to think that the churches are offered a a very visible sign of, of, uh, of ecumenical and indeed interfaith unity in a, in a world which often talks about how religion and faith can be divisive. I think the actual opposite was shown here, how faith can be something that brings people together and aids community understanding and indeed the pursuit of justice um, and healing as well. I was asked particularly to speak about some of the effects on the community and elsewhere about the Grenfell Tower fire. Obviously, the loss of 72 people and the many, many others who were injured, and the thousands of others who were traumatized, um, has devastated a local community and indeed far beyond as well. Um, it continues to be a traumatizing occurrence. And, and when I speak sometimes at, at places outside the local area, some people ask me things like, well, what's happened to the tower now? Have they taken it down? And one of the things I try to explain is that actually we are in the midst of an ongoing experience in many ways. The tower is still there. Yes, it's shrouded, thankfully. But, but this is rather like having, having some uh, terrible accident happening, though this was more than just an accident. Uh, but then not being able to clear up all the, all the debris, all the reminders of what has happened. And these continue to affect the local community who cannot escape what has happened um, in the past and continue to be traumatised by it. And indeed, ongoing worries about things like the contamination of the site, what will happen if and when tower is slowly taken down and so on. So it continues to be a traumatizing event for a lot of people and having so many people traumatized in the community has profound consequences for the life of that community on the back of experiences which many of them have already had which were traumatizing in themselves. One of the things we've learned is, is how trauma is itself an amplifying factor in so many other uh, features of, of, of brokenness that, that we either have in ourselves or we've had imposed by others on ourselves. And so this trauma comes on the part of, on the back of other traumas. To give you an example, a number of people spoke to me in the months after the fire and said, you know, Rev, this is not the first time we've been burned out of our houses. Um, because some of them have come from Syria or the Balkans. 
they have seen terrible things, terrible things may have happened to them or to their loved ones. And they come bringing those experiences. And then yet more experiences happen to them here in Ground Hall. And therefore, there are very understandable reasons why those figures in authority were not trusted very much to start off with uh, elsewhere and in Britain, and of course, far less now. And the response of our BKC in particular has, has left a very difficult legacy for, for the local authority, I suspect for, for a generation or more to come. It was, uh, as we've heard, an accident, but an accident which was entirely avoidable. Um, I've mentioned about the amplifying factors, but of course, these amplify things like um, issues which people have in their relationships, um, in an area which I have to say is hugely overcrowded. And constantly we see the effects of that overcrowding on relationships, on, on people's well-being and so on, about the stress and the tension that these produce, on mental health issues, um, and in the community itself, where we have so many different communities as part of our community around the Grenfell Tower, Tower area in North Kensington. And of course, this can introduce uh, new tensions and new suspicions as well. When people have the history that Bevan has talked about, of being ignored, of feeling they've not been listened to, and then you have the Grenfell Tower fire where people have been saying, well, we were telling you about some of these things anyway, before the fire happened, you're still not listening to us. And then a poor response to then what happens with the rehousing and people being looked after during those, those immediate months after the fire. This does tend to produce a very difficult dynamic of suspicion of authorities. So there is huge mistrust of, of public health bodies, um, of the contamination issues around the site, um, and about what's going on with the Grenfell Town Memorial and the public inquiry as well. And, and that makes it very difficult for any middle space to be found at the moment. It's a very polarizing environment. And those who are quick to judge such a thing need, I think, to try and understand what it is like for some of those people who, who have been through such terrible experiences, maybe not once, but many times or in the local area over many, many decades, perhaps. I think the fire betrays the attitudes of our BKC and other authorities. We've heard locally talks about the other way the area was described as one, one well-known phrase was a, a local councillor referring to another councillor saying, well, this area is like Little Africa. We don't want to go there. And of course, that's been widely publicised. Um, but it's also some of, the, some of the, the more subtle ways in which we've learned that, that, um, that the attitudes need to be challenged. So uh, when you re re remember that two thirds of those who perished in the Grenfell Tower were Muslim, um, and the counselling uh, and the therapy that has been necessary for so many Muslim families, and the comments that have come back from many of them, which, which show the disjunct between what is being offered, certainly at first by the NHS, which was very much based on a, on a Western model of the grieving process, but paid little attention to matters of faith, and particularly a minority faith in Britain, such as, such as Islam. And to be fair, the NHS have been learning from that experience, where it revealed the disjunct that was there at the beginning. Some of the attitudes of RBKC towards the local community and cultural factors. Um, and also the, the way in which often um, people were very, very wary to be stigmatized. Again, coming from that experience of being stigmatized already. So one example would be, uh, after the fire, much counseling and much listening services were offered by the NHS, which were branded under the banner of psychiatric support and mental health. 
to which a number of people say, look, we're not mad. We're not sick. We're traumatized. And that's not the same. Please don't brand us as in some way being deficient in some way because, because of what has happened to us, which, is, which, which was the result of, the, of, this, of this tower fire. And those, those are examples of the way in which certainly there was a lot of cultural learning that had to be done in the early days and betrayed, I think, probably the legacy of, of the past attitudes over quite a long period of time. Um, I think the, the impact of the fire and what's happened and its aftermath betrays obviously not just the attitudes of those in authority, they also betray the, in, the stark inequalities in, uh, in Kensington and Chelsea. A, a very, you, could, uh, you can draw a line between some of the richest people on the planet and others whose life experience is very, very different. I don't want to describe North Kensington and Grenfell Tower in particular in, in the kind of negative way that, that some people have, in, in the language of deprivation and so on, because actually there is so much that is positive about the area. But yet when you compare yourself and your, your life chances with those a few hundred yards away, the contrast is, is glaringly stark. It, ex it has exposed those fractures and, and I think also a failure of our democracy, local democracy in particular, in an authority where, where one party will win for generations because of the way that the local authority and our process is structured. And they know that, the opposition know that, the people in North Kensington know that, and have felt shut out of politics and local engagement for a very long time. I don't want to portray everybody in the local authority or all in authority as being thoroughly wicked or evil or racist or anything like that. But I think it betrays a, a lack of awareness, most of all. So a number of people would come to me in, in authority and say, but we're doing the consultations. We do the listening time and time and time again. But they're done from a distance. They're done from a tick box exercise. They're often exercises which I felt have been ex exercises where they've not really wanted to listen to the uncomfortable answers that might be received. And one of the things that I hope comes from the, the aftermath and the inquiries will be a real soul searching and an exercise in humility on the part of all those who are in authority and perhaps not least leaders in the, in the, in the third sector and, and church leaders too, about how actually uh, communities can feel enriched and engaged and there might be justice uh, for all and in the future. Thank you, Mike. Just, just before I go back to Bevan, can I just ask you to briefly uh, give us some, some idea of the, the interfaith uh, response, the positive interfaith responses. Uh, we've been speaking about the Christian church, but of course the church has not been the only one that's been offering. Uh, uh, I mean, the, 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 there are two um, Muslim communities, Shia and Sunni, in the local community, that the Sunni mosque Al-Manar is by far the largest and the most local. Um, it's about a mile away from Gaffer Town itself. Um, and we have developed since the fire a very, very warm relations between that mosque in particular, but, but some of those two, and, and the local church is in the immediate vicinity to Grenfell Tower. Um, and we, you know, we, we meet together, we've got to know each other, we, some of us knew each other well before the fire, but we've got to know each other much more closely. So every, uh, every round up, a number of us are invited to speak. Um, my largest congregation that I've ever had has been speaking at Armin Mosque. <laughs> And, and I am warmly received as, as, as a friend of Friday prayers. Um, so I, I think we, we are different and we don't disguise that difference, but we recognize that actually we have a huge amount in common. And, and the issues that, that are there about justice and about the local community um, are ones where we see things very, very similarly. Thank you. 
Fathom, if I can come across to you with one of the questions that we've received, and it really ties in this question with uh, some of the kind of uh, embedded institutional, almost like built-in elements of, 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 of inequality and racism that we see in the road that you described. Um, there, there are two questions. The first one is, do you think that the fire would have occurred in Chelsea or Knightsbridge? Do you think the fire would have occurred in Chelsea or Knightsbridge? And of course, we know where that, that question is coming from. And Michael has asked, do you think that those affected by the fire will get justice? So those are two um, uh, interrelated questions. Um, you, you know, those th th those living in in, in um, Chelsea and Knightsbridge, you, you know, uh, the kind of fire that occurred at Grenfell Grenfell Tower was as a result of. Um, cladding that just should not be allowed to be used on any building uh, and so my thoughts are that certainly in in Knightsbridge that type of cladding but I'm not certain that 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 type of cladding would be less prevalent but I suspect that there may well be one or two uh, properties there that may well have the same type of um, cladding but um, certainly they, they wouldn't be suffering the same kinds of multiple inequalities that uh, people in North Kensington would be suffering. Um, going to your second question uh, in terms of justice, that's a really difficult one. Um, I, I, I continue to pray for uh, justice for uh, the survivors and, and of, of uh, the Grenfell fire and their families. Um, and you know, there's the, there's the public inquiry, and and there's the ongoing uh, police uh, investigation, which doesn't really come into its own until after the public inquiry. So the tower is still effectively a crime scene as well, effectively. Um, it, I, I find it a difficult question as to whether or not uh, local people will receive justice because it's it, it, in, in what shape or form will justice manifest itself you know because it's not just about banning um you you, you know cladding um or building rec regulations it's about public health it's around local people having a voice uh you, you know that they be they, they have some kind of uh, agency in their own neighbourhoods, where currently they don't have that. So I, I think that's a difficult question because, as, as I say, I, I, it's not just about building cladding or building regulations. The, these are social justice questions which I think will take decades to uh, resolve. Well, I have a quick go. Uh, I think very quickly, I mean, would the fire have happened elsewhere? Yes, of course it would. But it wouldn't have been the same kind of fire, I suspect. I suspect. And I just, just to leave you with one comment that a fire officer uh, left with me a few days after the fire. He'd been on duty there, and he lives in a, in, in a block of flats a few miles away from, from the Scramble Town fire. And he simply said to me, you know, why is it that it's poor people who die in flat fires? That, that, was, that was his observation, his, his, his musing that he left with me. Will people get justice? 
I think, like Bevan said, it depends what you mean by justice. I think the answer is, in some sense, yes and no. Um, some people will not get justice. Some people have perished. Some people uh, continue to feel the, the effects. Other people will die before the before the inquiry results are out, uh, before this matter is brought to any kind of horrible word kind of closure. If justice is about blame, I, I, I'm not I'm not sure we're ever going to get to the to having you know unidentifiable uh, kind of one or two villains who are responsible for this. I think there's, the, the causes of this were were, were deep seated and structural as much as anything else. Yeah. Um, but in terms of justice being truth, we may get somewhere with that. And in terms of justice being equality, yes, I hope so in the future that actually there will be not only increased regulation but awareness of the effects of what happened when actually you you t you you take the you take the regulation away and you leave people with their own devices in a way in which people are inevitably prone to to cost cutting measures or all uh, kinds of measures which actually can impact on people and then often it will be the most vulnerable who are impacted in the city. I mean, just on the point of of the the injustices that that are kind of you know deeply structural. I mean, last night uh, Boris Johnson's Conservative Party. Has been lambasted after what is what is reported to be a shameful U-turn to vote down an amendment put into law, uh, the fire safety recommendations made during phase one of the official Grenfell Tire uh, inquiry. Uh, it was voted down by a margin of 318 to 188. Um, that should have really um, done things like um, create the national guidelines for carrying out partial or total evacuations of high-rise buildings, urgent inspections of fire doors. Uh, legal requirement for owners or managers of multi-residential buildings to check fire doors, uh, a legal requirement um, to provide paper electronic versions of building plans, etc., etc. I mean, in some ways, I mean, do we not see in that particular? Uh, and I don't know what the, the, those those uh, politicians were thinking when they made this decision, but it does follow a, an absolute promise made by James Brokenshire in October 2019, the Tory housing secretary that he would promise to implement the full uh, these implements uh, these recommendations in full and without delay that's not happening and so this to me speaks a little bit about this this this, this deep almost i would say even unconscious um, um inequality that seems to be propagating not through just the building of our roads but also in our laws and the way that we treat one another and, and of course in our economics thank you man. i mean certainly have I don't pretend that some of these matters are not are not complicated. Some of them really are and require deep consultation. But 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 why you would delay something on things like you know, fire evacuation instructions being being given strikes me as as, as relatively uncomplicated. Yeah. Um, I'm speaking, I know as an amateur here, but but more than that, I think it's the message that it sends out when you've made a promise that you will implement things in full and without delay. You, you have a a, a a real you 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 what you do is you simply compound all the prejudices that are, that are already there because you you, you know you, you are you are simply saying well we said one thing now what we're doing is another and whatever the whatever the arguments about bureaucracy they they don't matter a hoot in north Kensington, i have to say and, and it looks and it feels like obfuscation it, it feels like um trying to try to say one thing and do another and Surely, surely there must have been a better way to tackle this by, by the government, whatever the outcome. This, this has been, it has caused huge anger on, on the streets in the last 24 hours, I'll tell you that. That's certainly something that I've picked up very loud and clear. Um, people are dismayed and, and they're very angered 
um, and they feel once again they have been deceived. We've got some more questions coming in. Um, yes, yes, carry on, Bevan. I, I, I was going to say that I think it, it shows um, a, a lack of understanding uh, by the government of, of, of local people in that area. Uh, and it's just yet an, another slap in the face to local residents. Um, and, you know, Mike mentioned earlier on, you know, the, the challenges we have in terms of local and, and national democracy and, and, and the way that local people's voices are heard. In, in Kensington at the time of the fire, you know, I, I was a Labour councillor, one of 12, one of 12 Labour councillors, and I think there was something like 37 uh, Conservative councillors. So our voices are, 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 you know, hardly ever heard. Uh, and I, and I, th I think it's reflected in national government as well. We, we need to find another solution where local, you know, where local people, uh, their voices are heard and their needs are addressed. At the moment, uh, I, I think that there is such uh, a, a bias in terms of our politics to the rich and wealthy, and, and that needs to change. Uh, a question, Bevan, for you as well is, uh, what was the role of racism in the fire? And, and related to that, um, somebody's wanting to really have your thoughts on, on, on Black Lives Matter, perhaps in relation to, to our question. Okay. Um, I, I think institutional racism has played uh, a huge part uh, on decision-making on, on the part of the council for many, many decades. Um, but I, I think poverty um, also plays um, a role. So it's multifaceted. Um, but I, I, I do believe that institutional racism has played a part um, in terms of whose voices are heard, um, which residents' uh, priorities or which resident needs are seen as priority. Um, so yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I think uh, institutional racism has certainly played uh, a, a, a part in this. In terms of the, the, the factors that led to the fire, the fire is an accident, it's a national disaster, but it's one that could have been avoided. Uh, and it's wrapped up, it wrapped up in decision making, which has been impacted by, uh, um, I, I believe, issues of institutional racism. Right. In, in terms of Black Lives Matters, uh, I'm not sure of the context of, 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 of the question. Um, I, I, in, in relation to, to, to the fire um, and, and North Kensington, absolutely the, the experiences of, of uh, inequality over several decades experienced by people in North Kensington, but for black people in general, a day in and day out experience of uh, difference. You know, if, if you're black, your experience of the criminal justice system is going to be different, unfortunately, to that of, uh, you know, someone that's white. You know, your experience of um, education is going to be different. Your experience uh, of our health services are going to be different. If you're elderly, your experience is different. You know, if, if, if you're elderly and from, from uh, Black and Asian communities, you're more likely to develop early onset of dementia. Why is that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, COVID-19 
has really shone a light and amplified the inequalities that exist in this country and in North America and across the world, really, when it comes to black and ethnic minority communities. So I, th I think, you know, Black Lives Matters, I, I think this, this is a, a watershed moment that the government needs to listen to uh, and, and, and public organisations where, you know, taxpayers' money, we, there needs to be accountability here. Um, so I, absolutely, I'm a supporter of Black Lives Matters, um, but it is about structural changes that are needed in society today. I'm going to combine two questions for both of you. Uh, maybe you can start with Mike. How is the community feeling now? And do you, and by extension the community, have any faith in the inquiry? How is the community feeling? There isn't one community. There are many communities here, is, is, is one thing to say. Um, but I, I, I think this, the, the communities, if, we, if you can generalise, continue to be profoundly affected. You see people going along lives as normal. It's, you know, all kinds of things happen. Kids go to school and, 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 and everything. But, um, but, but you don't have to scratch the surface very far to find a lot of unease, um, a lot of um, mistrust or suspicion. Uh, sometimes, sometimes you might almost consider it to be, to be paranoia, if you, if it, especially if you come from outside and you don't understand the community context, um, which is there. And there are many brilliant things about, about the North Kensington community, to be sure, but it's, I think it's a community which is, which is damaged and, uh, and fractured at times, as, as the individual people are. Yeah, I'm speaking generally, of course. But I would say that that's to be the case. And, and it will be a long time to understand the, the full nature of, uh, of the, the impact, particularly perhaps on some of the younger people in the community. What was the second question? Sorry. Um, do you About have the public inquiry? Do I have faith in the public inquiry? I, I, I've met some of the officials in the public inquiry, as far as I can tell. They are absolutely, resolutely determined to get to the truth of what happened in its fullest extent. Whether they're able to, and whether what their findings will then be implemented, is, I think, perhaps a slightly different question. And so when you say faith in the inquiry, I, do, I have more, personally, I have more faith in some of it, but I come from a position of, of white privilege coming from outside. My experience is not that of Bevan. And, and, and Bevan's experience is the one that needs to be listened to in North Kensington, not, not mine, um, really, in, in terms of faith in authorities. Um, and certainly what I will say is that locally, faith in the, faith in the inquiry is, is I won't say it's a low ebb, but it but it's not at a high point. I have to say that, um, and every decision is scrutinised. And there's, that, that I think local people feel that that they're up against it in terms of the the, the, uh, the you know the, the the legal powers that are there, both on the, the those supporting um, the, the contractors and authorities and so on. Um, and, and I think people are worried about about whether actually the truth will ever be fully known. Having said that. The initial stages of the inquiry and the way in which they honoured the memory of those who died was was powerfully moving and also and I have to say did make a it was was also very helpful for the community too. Um, 
for me, um, do I have faith in the inquiry? Um, I think it's as Mike has said, I think that the, the key to it, I think the, the inquiry will make a number of key recommendations, but it's whether or not they're implemented. Uh, and, 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 and that's the crux of it. it, it, it the, the process itself, uh, I've got no doubt will be robust. Um, but I, I'm not convinced uh, that recommendations will be followed through. And, and we saw the vote last night, which kind of um, suggests the, the direction of um, travel. Um, in terms of how local communities are, 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 are feeling, it's, it's a difficult one. People are still traumatized. I think most definitely there's a, a mistrust of public bodies still. Uh, because the community has been let down over several decades. Th 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 that's, that's my short answer to that, really. Uh, if, if there is such a thing, the short answer is just such a complex, complex uh, issue. Um, I have another question from, from Chris. Uh, what role can churches and other faith communities play in housing justice? as austerity rumbles on and as we, na we na navigate COVID-19 recession. And of course, we have yet to reach the, uh, the very worst of that. I, I think for me, um, you know, the, the, the churches, as, as um, Mike has described um, earlier, played a, a pivotal and fundamental role in, in the support of local communities and, and, and have done for several decades. Um, but I, I think there's also something about um, pastoral individual support in, in terms of the trauma that people still are, are, are feeling. Um, I, I, I think that's, that's where the, the spotlight needs to be shone uh, in terms of individual needs. Mike spoke about, you know, issues around domestic, uh, you know, family relationships, etc. I think church plays a, a huge role in supporting families and, 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 and local people. Um, it has a huge role to play in terms of advocacy. Um, and, and certainly, you, you know, the Methodist Church plays a, a, a role, but I think that could be uh, ramped up even further, you know, without making it political in any way. Sure. Um. In terms of um, housing, I mean, first of all, I think one of the roles of the church is to challenge austerity in the first place. I think that my, my sense is that it isn't actually, we've had so many years of austerity, even with the massive national debt from COVID, that, that there isn't a mood for us for further austerity. I understand the financial pressures that the government is under, that the country is under, um, but, but you know, we, we have been in this position before in the past and we found other solutions rather than going down the route of austerity. And, and one of those is, is the kind of, you know, the kind of new deals that were brokered in the, in the kind of post-war experience. So one of, one of the things I would say, one of the roles of the church is to, is to challenge austerity, especially where austerity pinches, because that's the question in the end. It's, it's not what economic policies there are, it's, it's what the impact of those policies are, who they impact most. And obviously the churches are wanting to say, particularly we should pay attention to the most, the most marginalized and vulnerable, because they're least able to support themselves in the, in the time of adversity. And the other thing about housing, I would say, if I can give a quick answer, will be just to, to, to I think, go back to that, that sense of 
of social housing as a public good, a public good for people who live in it, a public good for our communities to have mixed communities of, of different types of housing in which communities can flourish and be strong and resilient communities, which is actually good for the economy as well. Economies of cities, economies of rural areas, areas of seaside towns and so on. And I think there's this huge, um, huge impact that we can um, that we can devote to simply simply um, keeping that on the on the public mind. In the end, governments, politicians respond to to public appetite. And if more and more people are talking about and thinking about housing, that in a sense will will make an impact as well. And of course, support uh, joint public issues uh, team upcoming uh, work on debt. That's going to be really important. Lindsay has asked a question. Um, she's written that I've, I was volunteering with the Red Cross Refugee Service at the time, and even uh, we struggled to find people who never to be very frightened of detention despite a promise of amnesty. Uh, there was never an accurate number. Those we did make contact with were deeply traumatized and frightened. Mikey pointed that out, and the mosques and churches seem to be doing great work in this area. The question is, are you aware of um, of um, the undocumented migrants affected by the crisis and how they actually found help, if at all? Um, that, that, that was a huge issue, I, I think, in the area, and there was a lot of fear. Um, you, you know, there, there was a concern at, at one stage that um, not all of the uh, uh, people that had perished would be identified um, because of this issue. Um, but fortunately, they have. Uh, and I think they have identified all um, uh, those that had, had, had perished. Um, Mike and I both sit on the same Citizens Advice Bureau in, in North Kensington, and they played a major role uh, in, in, in giving advice. So I know certainly uh, that, that there were individuals and families that were referred to me who I then referred to the citizens' advice. But that would normally come third hand because of the issue of trust and confidence. Um, so, we, we, you know, certainly um, the, the, the uh, advisors from the Citizens Advice uh, Bureau um, really played a, a key role in, in giving advice and support to uh, people who were migrants or undocumented. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, it's very difficult to say how many went without any support because, you, you know, you just don't know what, what you don't know. But certainly a number of families and individuals were referred to me and they were referred to the Citizens Advice Bureau uh, and they received housing, uh, temporary housing at least. Um, we are. We have time for one more question, and you know, we our, our audience is um, um, they are activists and they are people that know how to make things happen. And as the question comes from Derek, what are the current unmet needs of those impacted by the fire, and if anything, what can we do? You go first, Mike. Cool. Oh, right. Um, unmet needs. I think, I mean, what one major unmet need is, is to feel they're being listened to, really, and, and to, to feel that you're, you're, that you're worth being listened to. A sense of affirmation, I think, is, is hugely important for, for many people in the community. So, so it, in the end, that, that is, it, I think, about truth. It's about humility on the part of authorities 
and it's about truth being told and, and truth being heard. Um, so I, I think that's that's a, a, a big need. Obviously, there are so many others. I could I could go on for hours about housing, about overcrowding, um, about those who have no recourse to public funds, uh, and health inequalities, and so on. But I would say most of all, it's it, it's about how we how we listen to people and how we actually find ways of addressing of, of allowing people to feel that they are they are part of our they are part of us they are as, as in they are they matter as part of our society um, in in North Kensington and are not simply regarded as part of the minority that frankly don't count because the majority will continue to win election after election after election um, so yeah I would, I would say that in terms of that. I, I agree with all that Mike has said. Um, so for me, fundamentally, it's about changing uh, the the structure of of um, local governance in in the in the area. We, we you know we we have to move away from the uh, cabinet system uh, that that we have in, in in North Kensington. We have sorry that we have in Kensington and Chelsea. We have to find new structures that really amplify. The voices of those who live in North Kensington so that their needs are prioritised as well. So for me there are structural changes in terms of uh, local governance and government. Um, I, I think we're going to end on that particular um, suggestion for all of those who are present uh, to begin to working towards those ideals. I want to thank you Bevan and Mike for your participation in this group. It has been absolutely fascinating and moving and, and indeed challenging, um, especially given the fact that you are, you are um, on the ground and, and um, are continuing to do the, the, the wonderful work that you're both doing. So thank you. And I'm sure that everybody on this uh, um, webinar joins me in thanking both of you. Can I also say a, a big thank you to Dave and Romina and Richard who are doing a lot of work in the background and will continue to do work on these webinars uh, to be posting them on the CTBI website. Uh, please do remember to go and, and um, look, look up that website. There's some fantastic resources. And uh, for me to say a very good night to everybody. Truth to Power podcast is produced by Churches Together in Britain and Ireland. The music is by Nikolai Heidlis, used under a Creative Commons license.